Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina. This is part two of my amazing pediatric, that means kids-oriented interview with a good friend of mine and pediatrician expert, spokesperson for the Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Tanya Altman. Dr. Tanya, welcome back. I really enjoyed our first discussion. I hope everybody listened to it. And we're going to jump right in with even more interesting topics or just as interesting, not more interesting. So thank you for joining me again. Thank you for having me. And I was just remembering back to when I first met you in the green room um, of a popular television show. We were both sitting there commenting and realized we had so many common interests and thoughts on wellness and health and nutrition. And I think that's how we became instant friends. Yes, we did. And we've our, our uh, TV paths have been like, you know, parallel along the way. So it's been it's been fun, uh, you know, getting to know each other professionally and personally. And, and, uh, you know, something that you mentioned in the last episode, which I really appreciate is, you know, on, on some things that you're, you know, uh, opinion has changed over the last 20 years. And I think that's something important for doctors to acknowledge is um, particularly in things like integrative health, uh, but even in general health that, that uh, you know, things change and, and, you know, the good doctors will admit that they have changed their tune and explain the science and understand it. And, and you know, I think there's a lot of distrust of doctors for for whatever reason, and we're doing our best to stay up with the research. and And things change over time. It's not, you know, this is the rule, and it's going to be like that forever. You know, there's definitely an evolution in medicine. So, I appreciate you kind of acknowledging that. So, for part two, I want to jump right in with something that's still, unfortunately, top of mind for everybody. And you've been on the front lines from the beginning. Um, let's talk a little bit about COVID. You know, I really thought that we were going to be farther along than we are right now. But, you know, what's going on? What's your opinion? What are you telling patients? A lot of parents are still, and a lot of smart parents are still scared about the vaccine. They think it's going to cause all sorts of terrible side effects. Um, What are you telling people right now? Because I know you've been on the front lines and you've been a spokesperson and done a ton of television. So, and I'm sure this is going to apply whenever this podcast episode (laughs) is released. So uh, what, what, what's your opinion on the situation right now and what can we do? Definitely. You know, I think, um, again, talk about learning, you know, as we go, we were really learning about COVID-19 as it was coming out. Um, And so guidance was changing all along. And my views were changing as new data and research and my experience with families, you know, came out. I also did a lot of school health consulting across the country and just being able to see what happened in different populations and different ages, you know, also changed my tune. Um, Right now, we um, just recently got authorization for the infant COVID vaccine, six months to five. So now there's vaccines available for everybody six months and older. You know, I know that there's been a lot of information out there and it was a newer vaccine. That said, I think COVID is going to be around for a really long time. I think we're all going to get COVID at some point. I think I'm one of the last. I haven't had it yet, right? Um, Knock on wood, I can still say that when your podcast comes out. Um, But I do feel like the goal when you get COVID is to have mild infection. And to have mild infection, you need some protection from vaccines. So I think, you know, when the vaccine first came out, we all thought, wow, this is great. Now we're never going to get COVID. The vaccine was really made to prevent hospitalization, serious complications, long COVID, 
and death. And that's what it's doing a very good job at. Now, it's up to parents if they want to give it to their kids. All we can do is discuss, advise. Every family situation is a little different. And there's also different options for vaccines now. Like the little ones can choose Pfizer or Moderna now, just like the adults can do. They're different. Their data is different. So I think it's all going to be a discussion with your with your um with your physician. If you had COVID recently, it might make sense to wait on the vaccine because you might still have some antibody protection. I wouldn't wait forever because we know that um, antibodies from the va- from from actual infection don't last as long as the vaccine and they're not as good. And especially in young kids, sometimes we're not even finding antibodies when we do that blood work after they've had infection. So I think oh, there's really? nuances here. There's I thought the antibody protection was better with having an infection, but you're saying it's- If you're vaccinated, before I think it's so so we need a lot more data here but it looks like you need vaccination and an infection right to really have more robust protection if you're not vaccinated and you just get COVID these are the kids that we're seeing get it again a few months later and get it again every time they get it you have chronic inflammation in your body I've been seeing and I just met with a group of ENTs to confirm this I said why am I seeing all of my kids who get COVID-19 when they get sick again in next month they're ending up on antibiotics with sinus and sinus infections with um, ear infections and they said there is chronic inflammation in the tissue adenoid tonsil sinus and um, and it stays there after you get COVID and we think it's less if you've been vaccinated before but the younger kids were never vaccinated before um, same with long COVID diabetes we're seeing a a lot of diabetes now as a secondary, um, you know, effect of having COVID infection. But we do think long COVID diabetes and all that is less if you've been vaccinated. But I think you're going to need both. I think there's going to be very few people that can escape true COVID infection in the United States going forward. That's just where we are. So what about boosters? Because parents are wondering, um, you know, whether they should get their child boosted. So let's just say hypothetically, and this is a hypothetical truth because it's my children. Um, we all got COVID for the first time last month. They were fully vaccinated, but not yet boosted. Um, what should I be thinking about in terms of boosters? So I think it's reasonable to wait right now because they had two doses and then they had infection a month ago. So I think I would be very surprised if they caught COVID you know, in the next few months. So I think from three to six months after infection, they should be very well protected, especially because they have those two doses. So I would recommend you wait and reevaluate when it's time to go back to school based on what the numbers are in your community, based on other things around like, are you seeing high risk grandparents a lot? You know, what's your sort of tolerability of getting COVID again? Are any of your kids high risk? So I think right now during the summer, you're going to be good, right? Um, For your summer vacation and plans and camps. Um, So I would not rush out to get those boosters right now unless you said to me, hey, we're moving to Europe for a year and I don't know when we'll be back to get that vaccine. So how do you have the conversation with parents? Um, because this is a new, I, I think I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, the mRNA vaccine, like, because these are new, well, obviously the Johnson & Johnson is not that, but the Moderna and Pfizer, Pfizer I mean, even though this is new technology for a vaccine, it's not new technology in medicine. mRNA has been around for 20 years, from my understanding. So how do you, and again, I, I'm not saying that we're, we should force parents to do this, although many school districts are uh, requiring vaccination to return to school, which, you know, but how do you explain to them, um, uh, you know, 
overcoming this this fear and and some of these you know internet rumors about infertility and, and things like that uh, as a consequence of the vaccine. I mean, I think this is a broader conversation about vaccines in general, which are still you know some there's pockets of the country that it's still controversial. But what what do we know about the science now um, and, and and how this vaccine? you know, acts in the body that it sh- could be reassuring or comforting to parents? And are there families that maybe should think twice if they had a vaccine reaction? What what should we be thinking about for the parents that are still having problems getting there? Even though I think it's pretty clear in decreasing hospitalizations and disease severity and, and uh, you know, even duration of illness, potentially, um, that vaccines are doing their job for COVID. So how do you have that conversation? What do you tell them? What, what, what facts can we tell them? Yeah, so I think, you know, you're right. mRNA technology has been around for a very long time using cancer research. Um, it was actually used in other vaccines that we ended up not needing that they were developing. So I think the data is very clear that it is safe. I mean, we have given, I mean, we've had more data on this vaccine than we've had in any vaccine. I mean, think of how many people have gotten it over the last, you know, two years, two and a half years now, even. Um, And I do think that it is very safe. So I think there's always going to be people that question it. There's always going to be people that just, even after they listen to this, right, even though I think we're offering a very balanced opinion here, right, and not telling anyone what they have to do, I'm still going to get hate mail, right? Because that's what happens, right? Some people just no matter what they hear is good for their body or safe or healthy, they're going to go against it. And you can't really, you know, often it's really hard to talk, convince those people. It's very easy to scare people. It's very hard to unscare them. So, and I think this happens, you know, with, with all vaccines, yet we know that vaccines do play a role in really saving lives. And I think that, um, I think the data is very clear that it's safe. You know, I was, I was a little unsure personally about the six months to five years. And if, if we needed it, because everybody was getting COVID anyway, kids were getting mild illness. Um, there weren't as many hospitalizations and deaths, luckily, as in older age ranges. And then when the FDA um, and the CDC, when if you listen to all the days of all the thorough um, evaluations and going through the data that they presented, it actually became very clear that the, the vaccines were very safe and that they definitely, the benefits of getting vaccinated outweighed any risk and that it did help prevent serious issues in kids. So it sort of changed my tune to say, you know what, this is something that I am going to recommend for all my patients. If they don't want it, that's fine. If they want to wait, that's fine. But I think the benefits of having that vaccination protection before you get the actual infection is really what we're all going for here. You know, the interesting thing about this, because my husband actually produced a documentary on uh, vaccines, childhood vaccines, because Unfortunately, there is still some controversy out there, you know, that is brought up by um, different segments of the population. But, you know, for most vaccines, it actually really is a strong public health issue in terms of preventing transmission of disease, protecting communities. In this particular case, it actually seems like 
I mean, that may be a component, but I'm not sure, especially with the new variants, how much this is actually decreasing transmission versus actually protecting the individual. So uh, from, you know, disease severity and different risks. So it's almost like different, you know, it's not like, you know, measles, mumps and rubella, where we don't want people to get it because they, you know, it, it can be transmitted so much. I think there's certainly that I don't know if there is data currently about the vaccines that we have with the new variants, but certainly it does seem to be more on an individual level, like actually protecting our kids from getting too sick. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's I think it's both. I think there there is good data, even with the new variants, that while you can still catch COVID-19 if you're exposed, your chance is a lot less if you have antibodies from vaccination in the past. So we know that vaccines are decreasing the level of transmission, which is probably why I haven't gotten it yet. And my two younger kids and my husband haven't gotten it yet, right? Because we've definitely been exposed a lot, but we're all vaccinated. My 16-year-old did get Omicron at the beginning, and so I did wait on his booster, as we mentioned. Both my teenagers got boosted in the spring because it was required for their summer programs, and I wanted them to have more protection going into summer. So I did I did wait there a little bit on them um, to kind of stretch out that protection. So I think... I think there is clear data that it does help. I mean, unfortunately, it's not perfect and it doesn't eliminate the chance that you're going to get it as we all were hoping for at the beginning. So are there just real quick, just to touch on the last point, are there any families that maybe are right to hesitate about the vaccine? Is there any association between potential vaccine side effects with more traditional types of vaccines, whether it's live or killed, and this mRNA technology? So if somebody, you know, I know even with the, the you spread out the vaccine schedule, is should we be considering that for any families that have, you know, potentially some side effect to vaccines? So I think the mRNA vaccine does act differently from other vaccines in the body. And by the way, it goes rapidly goes away. So it doesn't stay with you, you know, after, after a couple of days. Um, one of the things we're seeing with the mRNA vaccines is it causes inflammatory response in your body, just like any illness would cause an inflammatory response in your body. So you will hear stories about people getting, you know, maybe rashes or other inflammatory issues. And the rare side effects where they did have an inflammatory issue where maybe their doctors were saying, you know, you shouldn't get the mRNA vaccine or you should get a lower dose of it or you should wait a longer interval between vaccines. Again, none of that has been serious, but it's it's all, but that is sort of what the mRNA vaccines do is they cause this inflammatory response. I still think it's less than actual infection would cause. Um, But if you have had a reaction to an ingredient in the vaccine, if you've had, so for instance, I know a few adults who, when they got their COVID vaccine, they just really got knocked out, right? They felt really sick for a whole week. Um, So should they get the booster, especially if they had Omicron already? Well, maybe not. If they've had two doses or three doses, they had Omicron. To me, having an infection acts as one dose. And we don't have the clear data yet on this, but I think many experts are acknowledging it's probably like getting one dose of vaccine. You may not need a booster right now, then, especially if it really took you out for a week, even though you got better afterwards and had that protection. Um, you know, you may not need to go through that again, but talk to your doctor. I mean, because even with grandparents, I know there's some cases where, yes, it'd be worthwhile to give that booster. No, let's wait because you just had the infection. Um, you kind of have to play all the different, you know, factors. And that's why it's such an individualized decision, which unfortunately with the healthcare system in the United States, 
it's hard to have enough doctors that can make individual decisions, right? And that's why there are these standard guidelines based on data for everybody to follow. But if you are lucky enough to have a relationship with your physician, and I hope that everybody is, you know, discuss it because there are some times where I might say, oh, let's wait another month so you have more protection going into this Europe trip or school this fall or whatever it is going on that your family has, or when grandma's coming to live with you, you know, those types of things. It's interesting that you say that I wasn't aware that the mRNA vaccine can cause an inflammatory response, but I think it's important for people to understand that one of the things that we are concerned about, one of the rare side effects in kids who get COVID is this multi-systemic inflammatory condition, right? What do we know about that? So it appears that MISC, the multi-system inflammatory condition, is much much, much less in kids that have been vaccinated. So we know it decreases the chance of getting that. So what that is, is it usually happens after you've had COVID. It can be weeks or months later because your body is still inflamed from having the infection and all the organ systems just get inflamed and you end up with this very severe illness with rashes, high fevers, kids looking really sick. It's not something you're gonna miss. Parents always say, how do I know if my child has MISC? Well, anyone who has a high fever for more than a few days who looks sick enough that they can't drink fluids and eat, they have a rash all over them or they're uncomfortable, see your pediatrician. And then we admit them to the hospital right away and, um, and start treating that condition. Now, I think that we are seeing less of that with the newer variants that tend to be more mild than we did with the original strains of COVID-19. I don't have data on that yet, but that's my feeling just from talking to the hospitals and seeing what's going on with pediatric patients across the country. I think we're seeing less of that. We're also diagnosing it much more quickly and now jumping in and treating it, whether it's with, you know, steroids, IVIG, fluids, all the things that we're using at our disposal to try to help decrease that inflammatory response and help those children. Yeah, no, that well, that's good to know. That's a relief because I know that's something that was kind of scary for me before I could get my kids vaccinated. You know, I was really worried about them potentially getting that, even if it's a rare chance. Who wants to take that risk with your child? So, one more thing about COVID, and then I want to switch to our last topic. Um, supplements. A lot of people want to take a magic. I see this with adults all the time. What do you tell your patients about supplements? Um, is there anything in the pediatric world um, that has some, you know, clinical relevance? What do you recommend to your patients? So I don't think we have a lot of data on kids and supplements. So what we do is we sort of use our best judgment based on available data with adults, um, you know, and guide based on we know it's not dangerous, right? And vitamin C and vitamin D are healthy anyway for your body and your immune system. So that might be beneficial for anyone, you know, who might be exposed to illness. So that's sort of how we think about it. So I do warn my families that you have to be very careful with many supplements in kids and you don't want to give them too many. Um, during the beginning of COVID, I got a lot of calls from kids who got into their parents' supplements, whether it was, you know, the zinc, the quercetin, um, you know, vitamin D, vitamin C. And so I learned a lot by working with poison control on what you need to do for those different overdoses. Um, I learned that zinc um, really just makes you feel nauseous and you throw up, but it's not really dangerous, which is good to know because that was one of the more common supplements we were seeing adults have around. So what I tell my parent patients is that, you know, I think everybody needs a vitamin D supplement. Um, depends on the age of the child. The recommendation for little ones is 
400 international units a day. And then it kind of goes up. Most of my school age kids, I feel can safely have 1000 to 2000 a day. But again, I don't go higher than that without checking a level. Um, vitamin C, I encourage vitamin C rich foods. So eating all those oranges and cuties and all of that. But I do think giving some extra vitamin C, especially if it's cold and flu season, if your kids are getting sick, can help. Um, zinc, a little bit of zinc, I think is very helpful for everyone. Again, you don't want to overdose it. So the dosing is much lower than it would be for adults. So maybe like five milligrams for those school age kids. Um, what was the other one? And you can get that from food. I mean, zinc from protein yeah. foods, from red yeah. meat, from chicken, even, you know, from, so I think making sure the balanced diet first is very important, especially with zinc, because it can compete with other nutrients. If you're taking it chronically, it can compete with things like copper and even iron and different things for absorption. So you're you need to be a little careful right. with that. What it's about like, probiotics? Vitamin is enough for the kids yeah. too. That has one milligram of zinc. That's good. In fact, I've consulted on some nutrition deficiencies, not in my patients, but in other communities during COVID where some kids were only eating processed foods and we were seeing scurvy and other things that you'd be shocked we'd never seen before. So I am never again going to tell anyone not to take a multivitamin, you know, in their kid's diet. Probiotics, I think, are also a great idea. There's so much research on that our babies are born now um, and not getting that good gut bacteria they need from mom, whether it's because mom took antibiotics, had a C-section, whatever the reason is. And so I think a good probiotic is very healthy. What, what does that mean in kids? Well, the research, again, is very limited. We have research on bifidobacteria probably being one of the key um, good um, gut bacteria that, that kids need. You also need the prebiotics, right? So that's the whole grains and all of the foods to feed, you know, those, those probiotics. Um, but I do recommend a probiotic again, if kids will take it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think the, in adults, which is, it translate to kids, um, you know, prebiotics are really emerging. Prebiotic fiber, so fiber-rich foods, a variety of even polyphenols and colorful fruits and vegetables are all really helping to support the healthy gut biome, which is really important. 70% of your immune system is in your gut. So having a healthy gut, and I think most of our kids are not getting enough fiber you know, most adults do not get enough fiber. We're not getting the five servings of fruits and vegetables a day and whole grains, more, at least half of our grains being whole grains. So I think that's a really important point. Don't waste your money on probiotics until you have the diet. I mean, it's like, you know, you're not going to get the benefits because the, the, the prebiotic fiber is, is even more important than the probiotics. But, and then I think, you know, having yogurt that's been fortified with, you know, healthy bacteria could be an option too for parents, especially if they're on a budget and don't want to spend a lot on supplements or are confused, um, you know, about supplements. But I, I was just curious on your take because I know we have we have similar thoughts. So, um, and and by the way, also, I mean, just getting kids to a healthy weight if they're you know getting their blood sugar control. I don't know, you know, how it is in kids, but certainly in adults, you know, diabetes and obesity are independent risk factors for more severe severe infection. So I can only assume that that's also an issue with kids. Uh, so, you know, the whole lifestyle integrative and looking at the whole picture, not just thinking that, oh, I can take a, pro I can give my kid a probiotic and they can still eat the crap cereal and have, you know, uh, all this food and be fine. It's, it's not an insurance policy when you're doing everything wrong. You know, if you're skydiving without a parachute and you're taking a probiotic, that's not insurance. So, um, 
Um, so the last topic that I wanted to cover, we have about 10 minutes. I'm just curious your take on it. Um, cause this is something that I get asked a lot about is the idea of food allergies or even food sensitivities. Are we seeing more of them? How can we really diagnose these? What should we be doing about it? Because I have a concerns that, especially in Los Angeles, where we both are, that is being overplayed and kids are not giving their kids, uh, parents are not giving their kids dairy or gluten at all, which, you know, a lot of foods, they're throwing out a lot of really healthful foods that are great for growing kids because they're concerned about food allergies, food sensitivities. What are you seeing on the front lines of, you know, pediatrics? Yeah, so I think you're right. I mean, we know that we have more food allergies now in our country, um, you know, than we ever had. And how, why? It's probably gut microbiome related, right? If you're not born with that good gut bacteria. Um, it's also for a while we weren't doing early introduction. So we, the body is an amazing system where you get used to what you're exposed to. So we have good data now that shows that giving kids the allergenic foods early on between four to six months on a regular basis can also help get their gut used to, you know, those those food products so they don't develop allergies later on in life. Now that said, you can develop a food allergy at any point in your life. I think it's important to know the difference between a food allergy and a food sensitivity. So food allergy is IgE mediated, which means allergic sense mediated, which means I eat a peanut and I get hives. I, my throat swells up. I have trouble breathing. That is a true life-threatening allergy. Whereas some people feel they have more sensitivities, like their tummy hurts. Um, you know, a lot of parents like to attribute food sensitivities to skin and other things, which may or may not be the case, right? But it's hard to prove. So you're right. I do think a lot of people are pulling things out of their kid's diet when we don't have the good evidence to do that. And that scares me because then you have kids that aren't eating entire food groups that are lacking that nutrition. And so I think it's a very important to work with a pediatric allergist with actual, you know, valid testing and clinical, the clinical picture as well, because we know that there can be false positives on food allergy testing. So, you know, just because your IgE to egg is, is, is elevated, if your child can eat eggs or they can eat baked eggs or cooked eggs, the data shows that if you give them a little bit every day, now, of course, talk to your doctor about doing this, they, they are more likely to outgrow their allergy. So we don't want to totally take it out of their system because their body will never get used to it. And I think you're right. A lot of people think, you know, are worried about gluten and dairy and all these things causing inflammation, which may or may not be the case. And most people can tolerate that fine. And it's part of a healthy diet. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Although I, I, I do think um, food allergies are much easier to deal with and much more clear cut, um, the evidence and, and the intervention. Food sensitivities is where I think we, we really don't have the <clears throat> answers and the solution and the diagnostic necessarily to um, – fully advise, you know, patients. And, and I also think there's a limitation to, you know, a lot of people are just not going to have access to a pediatric allergist. So what can a parent do? And I think, you know, probably, uh, let's talk about, I, I think gluten and dairy are the two biggest ones. So let's talk about gluten first, because, you know, celiac disease is real. And I think, uh, you know, Probably markedly, I don't know if it, it's the same in kids, but a lot of adults, you know, it's 10 years till the correct diagnosis and there's potential ramifications. So what should parents be thinking about in terms of, of if they think their child uh, may be sensitive or 
to gluten or actually have celiac disease? Are there any in kids? Are there any kind of red flags? Because you're I love how you simplify it to the red flag thing. Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. you're absolutely right. So if your child, you know, is having growth issues, they're not growing well, if they're having stomach aches, if they're having diarrhea, constipation, any GI issues or recurrent rashes, anything unusual, you know, we do, we do think about celiac. I mean, it is one of those conditions that can sometimes be masked, right? Like the great masquerader. And it's something that you can test for. So now, interestingly enough, in the United States, the official diagnosis is through biopsy of the intestines, but in Europe and other countries, and I was just actually opening my, my notes here, um, they actually, they diagnose it just with genetic testing and clinical criteria. Um, the, the issue with eliminating gluten before you have that official diagnosis, again, is that you're taking this entire food group out of your child's diet. And many kids, you know, need whole grains. As we talked about whole grains, that's what feeds the good gut bacteria, right? It helps you grow. So although the treatment for celiac is to remove gluten from your diet, we don't want to do it unless we really have that official diagnosis. And so that's sort of one of the tricky things. Um, and I think with the new serology coming out, we are going to eventually in the U.S. be shifting towards this more European diagnosis, you know, in the future. And celiac is something that can present at any point in life. So I have parents often say to me, I have celiac. Can you test my one month old? Well, you know, we don't know for sure. We can do some genetic testing, but I don't like to poke babies and draw all that blood unless they're really showing signs that we need to. And we know that if you introduce it earlier, you know, it may help. They've tried to do studies. If you don't give it to the babies that are predisposed, will it help? And it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that makes a difference. And just in terms of predisposition, I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, if you have an autoimmune disease, so something like multiple sclerosis or lupus or Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you do have a higher risk of celiac disease. So I just think it's worth having it on your radar. If you as a parent have one of these autoimmune diseases and your child is suffering from particularly digestive issues or weird rashes, that it may be something to bring up with to your pediatrician just to put it into their thought process. And really, in terms of genetic testing, you can actually, at least in adults, you can do it with saliva, so just with a cheek swab. But I still wouldn't do just genetic testing on its own because I know from me personally, I'm very highly disposed to have celiac disease, <clears throat> but I don't. I do not have it. So I think, you know, the serology, when we look at the blood tests and looking for specific types of antibodies, and you don't want to have your child off gluten when you test that. So I think it's important. But, you know, I think your point of just not, you know, taking the shotgun approach and taking your kids off any whole grains, although you can get healthful gluten-free whole grains like quinoa and things like that. So there is a way to have a healthy diet, but then you probably need to work with a dietitian, especially for school-age kids to be sure that they're having a balanced diet. So yeah. what about- The other um, thing is that I, a lot of my gluten-sensitive families will go to Europe or someplace where they bake bread from scratch and it's not- pulverized and processed and preserved, and they do fine and tolerate it fine. So I think a lot of it is the processed gluten too, that is, you know, um, some people are perceiving that that's what's upsetting them and they're more sensitive to than the actual just like naturally made, you know, bread itself. Yeah. And I think it's also from my understanding is how we grow the wheat in Europe versus in the United States, that that plays a big part in it. This industrialized farming that has taken over the United States between 
wheat and soy uh, and sugar or corn products. I think a lot of that probably factors in. So I, a lot of my adult patients who are sensitive to wheat go to Europe and are completely fine. So um, I think that's a really interesting point. But that's a whole nother podcast. But so what about dairy? Because I, I do, this is something that that concerns me. A lot of a lot of parents attribute eczema and, and um, conge- congestion to dairy. And I have a friend in particular who took both of her kids off dairy, who are like growing athletic boys. Uh, she swears that their sinus symptoms resolve completely. So maybe there is some truth to that. But what's what's your take on it? What do we know about dairy, the true incidence of sensitivities and, you know, physical conditions that might be likely to be associated with it? Yeah, I mean, I think with both dairy and gluten sensitivity, again, when there's not a medical reason, um, and it's just a perceived sensitivity, um, I'm fine with my family's going off for a month and seeing if it helps their other symptoms. But I have to tell you, most of the time, it doesn't help, right? So it's that rare case where it does. And then you have to work really hard on what you can put in their diet to help replace those actual whole foods. So if you find that your child does better off of it, then work with your pediatrician, work with a dietitian, and make sure your kids are getting enough calcium vitamin D. There's good data that shows that milk alternatives, kids on milk alternatives don't grow as well as kids that get actual dairy. And I see that in my practice too. So those are things that you really need to pay attention to. Um, So it's rare that I will take kids off of things as a trial. It's more common that they come into my office and say, we've taken off of everything and we still have all these issues. Okay, so let's take a step back then and figure out how else can we see what might be going on with these issues since clearly going off of those healthy foods, you know, hasn't helped and see if we can put them back in. Yeah, I think it's a tough area. I think we we have a ways to go in medicine in really being able to uh, I, you know, I know a lot of alternative medicine practitioners do these food sensitivity tests with IgG, which is another type of, you know, antibody that, and it, and it's really, it has not been validated. So for those of you who have been told that you are sensitive, whether you're an adult or a child to 20 different foods based on IgG testing, that is not something that has been validated in traditional medicine. That's not to say that there's no truth to it, but I, that's not the answer right now. So I think I, I, my hope is, is that someday, you know, looking at more subtle markers of inflammation or some sort of immune response, that we will be able to more effectively help counsel patients on it. But I think, as you say, the shotgun approach to just pulling things out of your child's diet in particular, I mean, these growth period times, like, you know, especially for girls, bone density is peaking. They need that calcium. They need that high quality protein. They need the added vitamin D, that sort of thing. So I think, you know, as a parent, if you really want to help your kids, I I think it's, you know, we all say, talk to your doctor, talk to your, but most doctors don't know anything about nutrition, you know, so it's a little bit of catch 22. Um, But I think it's important to really be thoughtful about these types of things. And, and, um, you know, I I think there's been some exciting research on the, the peanut allergy uh, and, and introducing that that's really evolved. It's changed. Our, and this is uh, especially in nutrition. It shows how things can change. But we we know now that, I mean, what what are the, what is the, the findings that just came out in the past year or so about the peanut allergy? Yes. Yeah, so we know that early introduction 
can make a huge difference. So we try to give all kids peanut protein, you know, um, when they first start solid foods. The other thing is there's some new, there's a new FDA approved um, medication. Not It's not a medication, but it's basically a treatment for peanut allergies where kids get the first dose in the allergist's office. And then at home, they take a little bit every day and it can help build up their tolerance to peanuts with not necessarily the goal of being able to eat peanut butter sandwiches, but you want to make sure they're not going to die or have a serious reaction if they're exposed to it. And so that's something that a lot of my families are doing right now, you know, at the, at the allergist office. There's also oral immunotherapy programs. Um, there's several going on in Southern California right now where whatever your child's allergic to, they mix all that together and they do one at a or they do one at a time. It depends on the program you're in and slowly get them used to different types of things. Again, you can't do it at home because food allergies can be life-threatening. You have to be monitored. It has to be done with certain protocols. But I think there's a lot of, you know, great new advances coming out and we will eventually have more treatment um, and cure for food allergies in the future. Well, that's exciting because I know peanut allergies, I'm sure it's terrifying for parents of children because especially for kids, you just never know if they're going to be exposed to a peanut. You can't monitor them 24 hours a day. So I think that's, it's exciting. And, and uh, thank you for, you know, sharing those updates with us and for sharing all of your brilliant knowledge with us. We're so appreciative. So I know, let's go, you've written, how many books have you written? Oh, gosh, I think about six. Um, I write a lot of books for the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm also the editor on the Birth to Age 5, which is sort of the, you know, gold standard Bible for parenting and pediatrics, what to feed your baby, baby and toddler basics. Um, and they're all on my website, drtanya.com. And I just love being a resource to help families everywhere. So please follow me on social media at Dr. Tanya Altman. Um, ask questions. I try to answer questions with video answers now, you know, a few times a week and just really help um, everybody understand what is going on because it's so challenging. And it truly takes a village to be able to raise healthy kids that can succeed and thrive. No, absolutely. And there's so much noise out there. And you are a true expert in the field. And you really work to stay current on the latest topics, which I really appreciate because I follow you and I listen to all your ideas. And I reach out to you personally all the time, too. I have an inside scoop. Sorry, everybody, you guys, you know, you'd have to work up to that. But um, I so appreciate, you know, how up to date and current you stay on everything. And I think your patients are lucky to have you. And we're lucky to be able to have you as a resource. So thank you you again for all of your time and wisdom. I really, really appreciate it. And I know our listeners do too. Um, this you've been listening to Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina, where I really try to find the latest science and present it to you in a way where it's practical too. I really need you to be able to implement these things. So if you have ideas for topics, if you have questions, if there's something that you want me to follow up on with a guest, I'm doing this for you, just like Dr. Altman, to actually educate the public and to make a difference and to make you empowered to be happy and healthy. And with these two episodes to raise happy and healthy children. So Dr. Altman, thank you again. And uh, I hope you all tune in. If you like it, share it, you know, comment on the podcast. Uh, we appreciate all of your support. Stay practically healthy.